0: Thank you, that didn't hurt a bit. (laughs) And yet, mm, I think we need, I'll wait for Steve to get the dial. Testing, 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 testing. And yet, is that right? Is that a right thing to do? what do you as a Canadian think of the Ten Commandments? What do you think in Canada as to how the church and the state should be separated? And perhaps we sort of say we don't want to think about that. But um, in the interest of not letting the world press your mind into its mold, that's the J.B. Phillips translation of Romans 12.2, it behooves you to be up on the Ten Commandments and to be up on the principles of God and how they relate to you as a believer. The question is not simple because after all you are not a Jew, you are a Christian. You are not under the law, you are under grace. The aspect of of rules is fascinating when you look at human beings around you and you look at human history. It seems that human beings at a guttural level, either hate a rule or love a rule, Uh, especially when it comes to observing them. On the other hand, everybody loves to argue about the rules. Everybody loves to argue about what rules should apply, especially what rules should apply to other people. That's human nature. Legalists and tyrants and totalitarians love to impose rules on their populations. And even uh, in your Bible, you will find under the age or the era of the law, you will find that there is, if, if you will, a proliferation of rules. It reminds me of Jesus' principle that It's because of the hardness of your hearts that those things were given, he said to the Jews. And so our hearts are hard and we need guidance. And often we look for guidance to the rules. But we know, as Christians, as we sang this morning, love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my life, my all. And when we take that approach to life, that it is from the heart, and that we need to live from the heart before God, things become an awful lot simpler, in fact, and less rule-based. Demands my heart, my life, in all its facets, my all, my energies, my time. And when we think about these aspects of Christian living in the Lord, we uh, can still get guidance from the old rules, from things like the Decalogue, which I hope to be able to give some exposition upon this morning and perhaps on a second morning if the time runs away. I mentioned J.B. Phillips in Romans 12 too, and not letting the world press your mind into its mold. What do you see around you? What what is the media communicating? What um, kinds of things do you see in what we might call the design of society or the intended design of society by the Canadian government? What sorts of things do we see from CBC and so on uh, politically? Uh, Do we see much reference to things like the Ten Commandments? And I think somebody wants to burst out laughing. Are you kidding? thus achieving hopefully some kind of equalization. So this is where the head of society, what I think anyway, where I think the head of Canadian society is. And it is indeed very far from a biblical perspective. None of the Ten Commandments are actually directed at societal concerns as such. That should tell you something right there. They are directed at someone... Who is that? Me and you. They're directed at me and my house. What I do, how I behave as an individual, and how my family or house behaves under my headship, that's what's in the Ten Commandments. The law given to the earthly children of God through Moses, and there is no talk of it. Um, one book that I obtained, and thank you to Warren for the Tom Watson book uh, that I that I have um, by Robertson is uh, it's not called the Ten Commandments; it's called the Ten Offenses. And this uh, Robertson is a a well-known figure at at one time in the American political situation. And he he begins the book by pointing out the the very fundamental role of the Judeo-Christian mindset and the Ten Commandments in the founding of the United States. When the president of the United States-elect takes the oath of office, he ends it with helping me helping be God. God helping me. What God? The Judeo-Christian God, the one who gave the Ten Commandments. In multiple public places of law in the United States, the Ten Commandments are on display. And Robertson points out that a court succeeded in having them taken down from a courthouse in Alabama. That's where it's going. And we've been going there big time in Canada. I think we would be... Uh, the, the likelihood of ever being allowed to put up the Ten Commandments on a courthouse, the probability of that being allowed by the government is exactly zero. That would not be permitted even though Western civilization is founded on these principles given however to the earthly children of God with a view to a type of government that does not exist today. And what is the name of that type of government? We have, I guess you could say, a democracy. What is the type of government under which the Jews were to live from Exodus 20 going on forward? What's it called? It ends in C like democracy, but it ain't democracy. Theocracy. Man under God. Man under God is a theocracy, and that was the design of society that was intended. And so the... Attitude and mentality of the Christian is uh, hopefully and historically emphasizing personal responsibility and personal accountability. And again, these are things today that are shunted to the side in favor of top-down actions to try to level the playing field somehow. The Christian doesn't have that mindset, at least I hope doesn't, The primary mindset is personal, me, accountability to God. I'm accountable and I'm responsible. And that's a very out of fashion idea. But perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. God's ways are not man's ways as the Bible teaches. And yet every day you are assaulted with the ideas of the world to press your mind into the mold of the world. And if it starts to hurt, you start to go, I, your, your Christian brain goes, my Christian brain is hurting. Well that's because your round Christian brain is being forced by the world into a square Canadian hole and it doesn't work and it hurts. And if it hurts you, that's good because it doesn't fit and it won't fit and it can't fit and you shouldn't expect it to fit. <clears throat> I love the uh, part of this, which is right there, in bold-faced type, in the fifth book of the Pentateuch, Moses was the compiler and author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the fifth one, which has 32 chapters, Moses is getting to the end of his life, and wouldn't enter the promised land himself, but he would go up and pass away, and the Lord would take him and take take his death, take Moses, take responsibility for Moses passing away. And before that happened in chapter 30, we have this. The word, oops, that was the wrong button. Is very near you it refers in that passage to mouth and heart first of all mouth and heart mouth and heart do you talk about this with your Christian brothers and sisters with your kids with your family with your relatives do you mouth mouth and heart Well, the heart, it's one thing to have text as external text. Is that text in your heart? If it's in your heart, you can say that you've memorized it, or at least the principles of it are in your heart. In this chapter, we are taught these things. It is in your mouth and in your heart, hopefully. It needs to be, Moses is saying. So it can be as near as possible, as near as possible. Of course, the practical implications of that, especially for the earthly children of God, one might say in terms of prosperity and in terms of politics, are very, very pronounced to the point that when you compare the blessings to the curses that are promised, for the earthly children of God, comparing obedience to disobedience and idolatry. It is, bl- it is white and black. It is a very, very stark, almost frightening difference between the consequences of following and loving God's instructions and God's word as compared to ignoring it and disobeying it and flagrantly going against it. The consequences are very black Very dire. And when you read them in the book of Deuteronomy, you would say, crazy. They'd be crazy. They've been given these principles. The prosperity that's promised and the blessings that are promised under the following of these principles are so fantastic. It'll be a testimony to the whole world and they'll enjoy the prosperity themselves. And that's not even considering the joy of worshipping Yahweh. Compared to the awfulness of the disease and the wars and the losing of wars and the losing of battles associated with idolatry. It's a no-brainer. Why, you might ask then, does the human being not say that, not that, because of the sinfulness of the human heart? and the failure to take God's word into the heart. Taking God's word into the heart um, is a meaningful statement coming from this point in time. For the believer, if you don't know the Lord and you are not in a relationship with God, I don't think you really understand what I'm talking about in an existential sense. I'm talking about... uh, the reality of the spiritual life of the Christian who is in love with God. I want to show you a couple of things in the next slide um, that go beyond mouth and heart. This is great stuff. I enjoyed preparing this. And for once, I didn't have to give six hours of lectures this week and six hours of tutorials and attend department meetings and have people dropping in my office none of those things happened (laughs) and my wife doesn't work on fridays at dell and about halfway through the morning she said will you get out of that bathrobe and get dressed (laughs) so i had some more time this week to study and to think about the word of god and that was very good what is the centrality how does the Bible point to the essentiality and centrality of the Word of God in specific, specifically referring to the Decalogue, to the Ten Commandments? What kind of place do the Ten Commandments hold in the Bible, and what kind of place should they have held in the heart and mind of the Jew, the earthly child of God? Well, first of all, what you find is that the tablets are told to us twice, both in Exodus 31 and Deuteronomy 9, to have been written with the finger of God. Is that not clear enough for you as to who this is from and what sort of significance it has? Written with the finger of God in stone. Well, that's pretty amazing. That means that these tablets are very, very special. That means that these tablets are very, very significant. But of course, it's not so much the stone as what is written. What is written for us and for them. And that happened, if you go one chapter before, Exodus 20, and you hear and you you read about uh, what they would have heard and the fire and the lightning and the thunder and the cloud descending and Moses going up and don't touch the base of the mountain, you could die. And they were absolutely terrified. And if we take a sort of fleshly point of view on this about being terrified, good. You need to be terrified. You need to know that this is God. You need to know that the giving of this law that's happening right now is serious business. And if you are afraid, and if you are told to be here and to hear, but don't get too close, it emphasizes the significance of the Decalogue. And then out of this comes the very voice of God. (laughs) <laughs> they were quaking in their boots, the lightning, the thunder, the cloud the, with, with Moses, and then the voice of God comes, they must have been quaking in their boots. And again, I say, good. Christians sometimes have the tendency to, what shall I say, it's, it's, I'm, I'm, treading on, I'm treading on dangerous ground when I say that Christians sometimes have this idea of buddy, buddy with God. Well, it is true that as a redeemed child of God, you have a special love relationship with God. But I suggest to you that maybe you don't fear God enough. Maybe you need to have a reverential fear that will enable you to have more respect and reverence for this and what it says. Later we find that uh, going to... uh, see, Exodus 32. There's a, a long uh, sort of interaction from 19 up to uh, 31, and then Moses goes up for quite an extended time. He comes down, and he goes back up, and he goes back up for how many days? 40. 40, Forty days. 40 days. They have seen the lightning, they have heard the voice, they have listened to the rules, and Moses uh, goes back up and he stays up there, and you know they they're quite uh, keen to say all these things we will do, yeah, just wait a cup, just wait a little while, wait a few weeks let 's see how you are in a few weeks. oh my goodness isn't that isn't that um, sad i don't know how you compare yourself to them how you would compare yourself to say that if i was shaking in my boots at the base of that mountain and heard the voice of god and saw my leader come up go up and come back down and speak to me the word of god and tell me the rules and i'm quaking and i say i'll do it i'll do it i'll do it i'll do it it's almost like i can't handle this anymore and then a few weeks later breaking rule number two what what is this well i'll tell you what it is it's human beings it's the forgetfulness and the sinfulness of the human being especially the human being that has not the spirit of god but you have moses then coming down and breaking the tablets as you would remember Spot in there. <clears throat> you can imagine <clears throat> the anger of Moses in having delivered the essential rules to find <clears throat> that a matter of weeks later they have already Broken rule number two and he's, he smashes the rules. <coughs> now, you um, should know something about what is a suzerain vassal relationship. It turns out that scholars who study the ancient Middle East can find other examples of suzerain vassal relationships in which there is a covenant treaty between a powerful one and a people, and that that covenant has conditions. Some of them are unilateral, and some of them are intended to allow a degree of autonomy in the vassal people. Such uh, suzerain vassal treaty statements typically start with the kind of verse you see in Exodus 21. I am the Lord your God. In this relationship, I am the boss. I am the upper entity in this suzerain-vassal relationship. The second thing that appears in Middle Eastern suzerain-vassal relationship is typically I have conquered you. You are now occupying land that I control. Instead of that, instead of that here what we have is I brought you out of Egypt. Do you remember? Do you remember? I brought you out of Egypt. And that sets the stage for the Decalogue. And so Moses went up, and that dialogue that Moses has with God regarding the jews because god was saying to moses that let me start with you moses remember i started over with noah let me start over with you these people are stiff-necked and moses pleads for his people and god relents and it shows to us i think the the tentative nature, the fact that the earthly children of God in some sense are on tenterhooks with God because they are repeatedly disobedient. And how is God going to have a suzerain vassal relationship with such a disobedient vassal, such a disobedient crowd of people? In the world and in the flesh, the the suzerain might come in and say, you aren't keeping the terms. I turn you into slaves, not vassals, slaves. You don't like being a slave? I kill you. Totally, totally different. The God in the Old Testament that we known as Yahweh agreed to, on Moses' pleading, to continue to deal with the Jews. And another set of... Uh, God said, I will will write another set of tablets. And we know, as you can see there from the image of the Ark of the Covenant, that there are two. It turns out, according to the scholars, and it makes sense to me, that, you know, I, I had thought that, okay, there's ten commandments and there's two tablets and maybe five on this one and five on that one. That's what I was thinking. No, 10 on this one, 10 on this one. Mr. Vassal, this is your copy. Keep it, read it. This 10 here, stay with me. We understand each other. We both have a copy. That would be the typical Middle Eastern Suzerain vassal arrangement. In this case, I see a beautiful picture. I see a beautiful picture in which the Shekinah glory of God is over the ark of the covenant, the ark of the testimony. What covenant? What testimony? Inside. And the beauty of it is uh, side by side. They're kind of a... When I first looked at this picture online, I didn't know what those things were. But I see what they are, is they're the stone tablet lying flat, and they're not connected to Aaron's rod that budded. Uh, But there you are, under the mercy seat that was sprinkled with blood, underneath the Shekinah glory, is both your copy and God's copy, side by side. I'm very impressed by that, I'm very touched by that. Is your heart such that the copy that God has put of his principles and his law in your heart is side by side with the Holy Spirit's copy given to you. I hope so. I hope that in your relationship to God, this understanding is side by side under the blood and knowing the glory. So this Decalogue has tremendous significance to these people. Tremendous significance. And we read in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, and in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 7, God spake, God spake. All through your Bible, you can find examples of Ezekiel said and that... um, Isaiah said that God said. And sometimes, Isaiah says, just straight out, God says, it's coming through Isaiah, God says. But these people stood at the base of this mountain and they heard, and when it comes, God spake. It's like real time. God spake these words. So, I knew that would happen. Oh, I know why. Here is the culprit. God spake these words. And these words were kept in a very special place of reverence and awe, where the high priest could only go into the room where that was located once a year, and not without blood. Very, very significant. It's quarter after 12, and um, half an hour ago, uh, children went down to Sunday school. Well, guess what? You are now in Sunday school. I was looking, I did it myself, but then I looked, and I wasn't satisfied at all. When I was in high school, one of the questions that I pretty much knew was gonna be on the final exam in high school history was, give the reasons for the fall of the Roman Empire. And having a probably the mind of an engineer without really knowing it, I created a mnemonic so that I could remember the 10 reasons, there's too many. If you just say, learn the 10 reasons, that's too many for me. I need a mnemonic and I created a mnemonic so that I could remember the reasons. Now you might not like my mnemonic. Um, apologies. The, the idea of a mnemonic is that it's a sentence where the first letter of every word helps remind you of the key word that you need, in this case, for the commandment. If you travel in Europe, especially around the countries of the Mediterranean, and you are on busy subway and train stations, everybody warns you about the pickpockets, so you if you're walking, do you, you just keep your distance from people and you're glad to get out of the subway or the train station? I don't think I've ever had anything taken in that manner, although I know people who have had in, in countries bordering the Mediterranean. So you have Ten Commandments and you have ten letters and the letters are W I V S P M A M A T L E. <clears throat> when in Venice stay put, most all thieves leave eventually. I think of St. Mark's Square, a beautiful big square with a cathedral at the far end of it, bustling with people bumping into each other. And you sort of feel, should I stay or should I go? That's kind of interesting. I think I'll stay just to keep my distance from people. Venice is a very interesting city with all those canals. Stick around. Take a gondola ride. I'm helping you to remember my, my sentence. When in Venice, stay put. Most all thieves leave eventually. How does that help you? This way. The first commandment teaches you to worship only one God. It deals with worship. The second commandment tells you not to engage in idolatry, such as the golden calf that would be built within the coming weeks by the very people who listen to this. The third commandment, I've put in single quotes, is vanity. Do not take the name of your lo- the Lord God in vain. And I will explain more about the meaning of that. The fourth commandment pertains to observing the Sabbath. And the fifth commandment pertains to honoring your parents. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill this, uh, seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And the eighth word in my mnemonic and the eighth word in the Ten Commandments pertains to stealing. Don't steal other people's stuff. Don't be a thief. The ninth commandment, don't bear false witness. Don't tell lies. And the 10th commandment, envy. In Deuteronomy, it has the word desire as well as the word envy, and it includes property since they were about to enter the land, worship, idolatry, vanity, Sabbath, parents, murder, adultery, theft, lying, and envy. And so, on a future day, we will discuss these commandments in detail, one by one in the English language in your Bible and the diagram that I want to leave you with this morning before I close in prayer is one of the many valuable things that the Ten Commandments give you. Uh, One might say without looking at the details too closely, one of the things that they give you that you can take with you this morning is the fact that it has three perspectives. It doesn't tell you what government to elect. It doesn't tell you about inclusiveness or a host of other things or, or how society should be organized. It's directed at me. And me in the middle, if I imagine that, it's kind of narcissistic, but these commandments are directed at me after all. That there are three realms where I should be aware of how I am doing and how I am behaving and, how I'm spending my time, and how I'm allowing my attention to be taken up, and those three realms are the realm of my relationship to God. The, re- the realm of my relationship to my family, so it's, you have a, three realms. Your upward realm, the most important realm is your relationship upwards and downwards with God. That then affects how you behave in the other two realms. One could argue, I think very clearly, that if in fact you obey the first commandment and you worship God and you love God, the rest of these things pretty much take care of themselves, right? A person who worships God and loves God is not going to be doing those bad things. So the other realm there that we should be very conscious of is our family, such as honoring our parents. And of course, we can find in our Bibles the importance of uh, leading our families spiritually and of providing for our families. This is a natural outgrowth of a nuclear family which also honors the parents. So the realm of the family, the immediate family, and then the third realm is harder to define, but it is the, in single quotes, the neighbors. Who is your neighbor? What New Testament parable dealt with this question? A man came up to Jesus and said, who is my neighbor? Gotcha. Have I got you? Got you there. I bet you can't tell me who my neighbor is. And what parable was that? The Good Samaritan. In other words, Jesus said, the definition of neighbor is big. For these people, the definition of neighbor included two groups of people, fellow Jews, but what you will find is frequent mention of the foreigner who is with you. You see, here's a question. There is a society, and in this society, There is no crime. People are good for their word. People are trustworthy. There is no stealing. Law and order with known punishments that are severe. And this society is really prosperous. Wanna join? A lot of people go, yeah, I'm getting my stuff stolen and I'm being assaulted and I can't trust anybody, and as a result, my entire country is a basket case of poverty. Uh, Where is this country? When can I get a plane ticket to go there? Because I wanna be there. That's a good place to be. So there would be those who know the testimony, the intended place that the people of God were supposed to achieve, and that testimony was to draw in the foreigner. So the foreigner is frequently mentioned in the law of God, in the Torah. And so, neighbors includes those who are in fact not Jews, but who are around you. And you are to treat them every bit as well as your blood brother Jew. That is in the Torah. So with that this morning, I would like to close in prayer and we will continue the 10 Commandments at a future date. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed your word to us May the law of God be in our hearts, and may we uh, be children of God who honor you in all the realms of our lives. We pray that you would go with us this morning and in the coming week to give us strength and guidance. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.